Hello and welcome to episode three of AS for Architecture with me, Ambrose Gillick. I'm talking today to Professor Bob Brown of the University of Plymouth about his writing and research on vernacular and indigenous architecture and its relationship to professional practice. So I think there's something about the profession, the nature of architectural education, that quite actively, whether it's uh, explicit or implicit, acts to define that circle and mm. what constitute is you know, included in the pantheon of architecture. Mm. And on the whole, vernacular architecture, despite its energy, despite its creativity, gets dismissed because it doesn't fit in easily to you know, what the, the profession has delineated as constituting mm. good architecture. A is for Architecture, a podcast about architecture, buildings, urban culture and space. Hello and welcome to Bob Brown from the University of Plymouth to this episode of A is for Architecture. Um, Bob, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Bob Brown. I'm Professor of Architecture at the University of Plymouth. Obviously, I'm not from around here, a transplanted American, but I've been here over 30 years now. Uh, you wouldn't guess by the accents, but along the way, I've also spent a fair bit of time in other places, uh, working in India, places in Africa, uh, teaching overseas, notably in China, um, also connections with Egypt. So been quite mobile uh, in my adult life. That's really good. And and our, uh, my, my, I've never met you in real life, which is quite funny. Um, <laughs> we've only met each other through this process of... Um, external examination so obviously you're an external examiner in the master's program here at Kent and it's through that that we kind of got in contact because I teach one of your papers in my in my history and theory course um, on vernacular architecture which is a really great paper which you wrote with um, Daniel Maudlin isn't it Um, is he a colleague of yours at Plymouth yeah he was in the architecture department and sadly about 10 years ago, we lost him to art history. Uh, uh, he does have an art history background, but he's a real fan of architecture. But for all sorts of reasons, he kind of made a sideways move. Um, we've missed him greatly ever since. <laughs> I, um, so your background is in, is in architectural practice. You're a, you're a registered architect, both in the States and here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And who, yeah, who so did you I, work I, with? So you worked with Levitt Bernstein, you said. Yes, I I worked there for about 11 years. And prior to coming to the UK, I'd worked in Chicago for a then very famous architect named Stanley Tigerman. Doesn't ring a lot of bells for younger people, but in his day is quite notable. Something of the enfant terrible of Chicago architecture, the guy that the press would always go to because he'd make these rather biting comments, but Mm -hmm. he he was a very good writer, very good, incredible speaker. Um, and once in a while, he'd pull off some really fascinating pieces of architecture. But he was also an architect who worked for the rich and famous of Chicago, or mostly. And while that was interesting coming out of university, I thought, this isn't for me. So I was specifically trying to find practices that were more socially oriented or you know, much more engaged with social issues as I saw it. And so found myself at Levitt Bernstein and stayed there quite a while. It was only through teaching, uh, which began one day a week and then grew and grew and grew. It, it got to a point where I had to make a decision where I was going and found myself in academia. It gets us in the end. It's, uh, it's, it's quite nice in academia, but in that way. The, Levitt Bernstein's work is, uh, I remember when I was uh, an undergraduate in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, looking at their work, they had done up a theater, uh, a corn exchange in a town near where I came from, turned it Mm. into a kind of mobile theater, a a kind of flexible space with um, demountable seating and things like that. Um, And I always thought that their work was, yeah, very good for the British context in that it it managed to combine that architectural complexity with the social good, which seemed to be quite absent, certainly in the, in the late 90s. It was quite interesting work. But your, your, your work out in India and in the uh, global south, what, what, what led you there? 
Well, I, at Levitt Bernstein, I was very much engaged in community-based work, mm-hmm. housing estate regeneration, uh, some health-related facilities, uh, elderly housing, um, and so forth. And through that, I really got interested in community participation mm-hmm. and took a course uh, offered by the Institute of Housing, became known as something of the, you know, the kind of community participation guy within Levitt Bernstein, mm-hmm. um, was doing what I could to read everything about it, have written a couple of papers that got published. And then Levitt Bernstein became part of a consortium working with a number of other architects, planners, and so forth, um, providing training to the state of Maharashtra Mm -hmm. Housing and Area Development Authority. So a bit of a mouthful, but think Mumbai, and and that's where the state of Maharashtra is. And so we were running a training program to upskill their employees, including around issues of community participation. Just to put it in perspective, the state of Maharashtra Housing and Area Development Authority, or MADA, is the world's largest landlord. So they have a lot of property, and they're wondering, how do we get all these people living in our housing a bit more engaged with it and and Mm -hmm. find ways to get them to take ownership and and take better care of the housing. So I was sent out on secondment to work there and and work with them partly through the training program, help put some kind of things in place um, for the organization about how they would implement uh, participatory practices. And as luck would have it, not soon after I arrived, the government suddenly announced that they were gonna have an election and that may not ring bells here, but in the context of India, that means everything stops. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to make a decision on anything until after the election. Mm-hmm. So I was just kind of sitting around going, oh, you know, what do I do? Do I go back to the UK? And I'd met some architects who were working in informal settlements and they invited me to work with them and Kindly enough, Levitt Bernstein you know, gave me a bit of leeway then to uh, work with them while I remained out there. And that then uh, led to doing some work for Department for International Development through the Max Locke Center at the University of Westminster, examining best practice in community development mm-hmm. uh, related to community-based facilities. And, and that was looking at several countries in Africa. And, and I think it all just really came though out of this engagement um, with socially oriented work and valuing the lives of the people there and trying to find ways to be more responsive as an architect and what I was doing as an architect to the inhabitants' lives. Mm -hmm. I think going back to what you're saying about Levitt Bernstein, one of the things I always appreciated about their work, whether community-based work like housing, or the theater projects is they had a certain degree of humility about what Mm -hmm. they would do. And they never went in saying, well, this is our agenda. This is what we're gonna do. The agenda always came out of the place, what they found there in terms of existing buildings and the people who lived in them. And that generated the discussion. It wasn't as if they brought something said, well, this is what we're going to do. What do you think? It mm-hmm. was always, let's, let's find out the views people have there and, and let's take a kind of critical examination, a critical look at that place and mm-hmm. see what it starts to tell us. So I think that that's been quite informative about my own attitudes. And I think also led in a way to attitudes I have about the vernacular, mm-hmm. I think That's also been reinforced uh, over the years through uh, doing a lot of teaching overseas. Once you kind of get started, then people know you do that. So you get, oh, you've taught in so-and-so. Why don't you come here and do something? So it's just kind of something that fed on itself. Um, So pre-lockdown, I found myself going off much to my wife's (laughs) dismay quite a bit to each of various places. Um, and I've also been involved with the RIBA uh, validation panel and so forth. So that's, again, continued that mobility, all of that sort of in question now with issues of climate change, um, 
COVID and so forth. So mm. how that's going to continue in the you know coming years, I'm not yet certain. Like you said, you know, doing a lot more of this now online. Yeah. And in some ways that makes it easier. Um, but also something's lost about that, you know, oh, for certain. Yeah, for certain. The um the I, so I did I did my doctoral studies in India looking at so yours was in the post-disaster context of the Maharashtra earthquake I presume um, which was one of the discussions around the work that was done in Maharashtra was one of the sort of leaping off points for my own um, analysis of what was being done in 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 Budge uh, under Bada the Budge Housing Area Development Authority uh, in Gujarat state and that was um, yeah again I was looking specifically at a kind of multi-dimensional practice based in Inbuj who worked with communities to to do I suppose you might call it process led or or mm. how is the best way of putting it it's a sort of bottom it's a sort of grassroots development process mm. I think they called it um there's an organization called Hunashala um they called it owner-led housing reconstruction mm. which led to a kind of uh a replication or a production of, of what I call a synthetic vernacular, a kind of um, a community. So, so there was very little, in a way, there was very little architecture, quite architecture there. There was very little um, uh, of that kind of highfalutin design that we, we, we mm. train for. Um, yeah. Instead, it was a kind of uh, emboldening of normative vernacular practices. And I thought mm. India was particularly interesting because of its hybridity. I mean, it's um, yeah. particularly in that urbanizing thing. And you you mentioned this in, in, what, in a couple of the papers that you sent me that, that I enjoyed reading. This in, the urbanization as this thing which kind of challenges vernacular architecture. And I wondered if you could kind of speak about how you understand or how you, in interpret the vernacular because there's this obviously there's this kind of very pristine idea of the vernacular which is old buildings produced by indigenous communities without seemingly any external influence which is obviously an absurdity but um and then and then everything else is not vernacular yeah. and i find that a problematic idea and so i just wondered if you could kind of speak okay. about that a little bit for me, I'm slightly reluctant to try and define the word vernacular, mm -hmm. um, not to kind of undermine what's going on here, but rather I'm against, a, 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 I think is a Western and academic tendency mm -hmm. to categorize things. Mm -hmm. And various writers have written on that, um, you know, that the way that we like to kind of put things into nice, neat little boxes. Mm -hmm. This is one of those. You know, as an example, people saying to me, "Oh, you're 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 so typically American." I'm like, "Which part of me is typically American?" The, the fact that I've lived in the UK for 30 years and worked in India and Africa. Okay, that's not it. The fact that I have a Japanese wife. Okay, that's not it. Uh, the fact that my kids were born in the UK. Uh, all right, that's not it. The fact that I don't drink coffee like most Americans. Yeah. Which part of it me is so typically American? And what yeah. America are they talking about as well? Exactly. And I, yeah. I think it, it reflects certainly a Western tendency to want to try and find something. Mm -hmm. Oh, this fits into my preconception. Mm -hmm. uh, now I'm happy. Now I know who you are. It's actually you don't. And I think this is the danger of any word that we might use, modern, vernacular, you know, high tech, whatever it may be, in doing that, there's a bit of a danger of oversimplifying things or reducing things. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't give value to the complexity that I think that you are pointing at. When we start to unpick, closely look at things, we, we realize that the situation is much more fluid. I'm sure you saw examples of this in informal settlements that you were encountering. I saw it uh, in India, Africa, see it in the UK. The way that people are not so pretentious about what they do and they find things um, that are value to them. I remember in 
South Africa, you know, one woman um, from the Ndebele tribe saying, you know, we see what we want, we make it our own. And she had this huge BMW symbol painted on her house. Yeah. Why? She didn't drive a BMW. She, she didn't drive a car, but she just liked the color yeah. and, you know, the character of the symbol. You know, and, you know, we could see that as kind of twee, you know, what does it have to do with her life? But it reflected a very genuine aspiration she had just about the graphics of it. Mm. And she liked it. Mm. And so she said, I, you know, I kind of like it. I think, you know, she's probably well aware also a certain status symbol connected with, you know, owning a BMW. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, I think that notion of the fluidity or hybridity is really important to recognize. And I know you were critiquing some of the perceptions yourself just a moment ago, the way that the vernacular is seen as something old, something mm. traditional, mm. and with that, something fixed. But when you start to examine those words uh, in terms of etymology and start to examine notions of the vernacular in terms of practice, we understand that the word tradition in its original roots means to carry forward mm. something from the past, but something mm. that's brought forward. So it does have continuity and that can inform. Mm. It's not just relegated to a particular time or a particular place. And I think the history of humankind has always reflected a certain degree of mobility. People talk about the 20th century, the rise of globalization. Well, you know, I would point to, um, and as others have done, you know, what were the Romans, but a, a globalizing force yeah. in their time? What were the Chinese, you know, Genghis Khan and others, you know, the expansion of the Chinese empire. Mm -hmm. This has existed for, you know, you know, I would argue ever since, there's been civilized humankind and if not before and there's always been this spread of ideas which contributes to that hybridity there's not this hermetically sealed context in which things arise and then there's things outside there's always this back and forth things mm -hmm. filter in people pick up hey that's kind of interesting let's make use of that and i think what i understand from you know, brief discussions with you, both in person, online. Certainly what I value is recognizing that hybridity and seeing it as something that enriches architecture, mm. enriches place, enriches people's lives. Um, so, I, you know, I think going back to your original question about defining the vernacular, I, I think I would distinguish it if I had to, um, from something that uh, has to be seen as delivered by a certain type of practitioner. Mm -hmm. you know, and I think it's something like 90% of the buildings in the UK are built without architects anyway. Mm -hmm. So most of what we see is, you know, kind of non-architecturally designed mm -hmm. uh, part of vernacular. But I, what, I'm, what I'm giving value to is that stuff that may sit outside what, the profession typically says, this is architecture. Mm -hmm. um, whereas I would argue, we need to see all of that as architecture there. You know, and I, I see that divide that's often uh, made there, that line drawn between those two things is something that's a lot more permeable or mm. diffuse, ambiguous, not so clear. And we see things moving back and forth. Long-winded answer to your questions. So no, not sorry. at all. I mean, a really, really interesting. And I, I've been thinking a whole host of things as you've been go, going along, trying to keep them in line in my mind. But the, I, part of me thinks that the... Um, sorry, I'm getting notifications now as well. Um, part of me wonders about this this idea of... So you mentioned the modern and the vernacular, these, these desires to kind of um, discreetly define things. And I, for me, modernity being a paradigm or being a yeah being a paradigm can in a certain sense be defined it had a starting point and various theorists Marx and Arendt and um, Weber and so on and so forth have tried to pinpoint it whereas the vernacular seems to me to be a, a uh, I suppose a cognitive mode or a cognitive field so that that 
I, I do wonder whether the desire to define the vernacular as a discrete thing is part of what certain theorists have seen as being a characteristic of modern thinking. This de mm. desire to draw a line around something. And it's been very useful. I mean, it's at the heart of the scientific method, isn't it? This, this differentiation um, enabling description and therefore enabling comprehension and, and in terms of say, for example, diseases. Mm treatment but we, we do that we, we do that with other cultures as well and that's mm. kind of what I feel about the, the vernacular tradition is that we, we we want to draw a line around it to say this is in and this is not in which is yeah. this peculiar tendency as you say and, and it quite clearly didn't exist previously it is quite clearly something that when you look yeah. as you say at um, the Indian context there isn't there is a, an authentic and inherent synthesis evident in the way that that culture doesn't so much, um, it's not a conscious appropriation, it's just a kind of, nat natural is the word, it's just a kind of, it's just what, what is done. Like people, as you say, put a BMW sign. I saw, I saw this wonderful example in, in the informal settlement I was, living in during the, the period of my field work where they'd built them these rather lovely rammed earth houses and someone had decided that they wanted to cover theirs in flattened oil drums you know like cooking oil drums which they had shingled the entirety of the house they had subsequently rusted and the building looked um, nothing short of atrocious uh, amongst all of this lovely rebuilding stuff um, but it clearly did it, it clearly did do something, and I and I wondered whether what we what we're dealing with here, and, and particularly in say, for example, uh, um, reconstruction and redevelopment work in the global south, is is um, a difference between architects, the profession of architecture, focusing on needs, and the vernacular focusing on values or deriving from values. Um, so we have this kind of Abraham Maslow kind of hierarchy of needs where when we go into, say, for example, yeah. reconstruction situations, we produce shelter because they need shelter. And so we kind of rank the, the functions of architecture in this Maslowian method. And when people build their own houses, they do things in very strange orders. For example, they might um, preference play or they might preference um, yeah. domestic intimacy yeah. far and above what we would understand as being the right way of doing things. I, there's a lot in that, and I'm gonna potentially take us off into a slightly different ground and, and ground that I'm sure, because it's happened in the past, will rankle with some. And, and you talk about dating, you know, here's the rise of the you know, kind of particular uh, way of thinking, modernity, and, and as you say, the, the kind of drawing a line around things. This is what's included in architecture, and then there's this other stuff outside mm. it. And I would suggest that that dates back, certainly in the UK, to the formation of the profession. Mm -hmm. And we can see evidence of this with people like Vitruvius, but I think in reading Vitruvius, I also see what his motivations were. And it's about, whether it's Vitruvius, whether it's about the architectural profession in the UK, the States, wherever, it's about distinguishing what you're doing from what others are doing. And very uh, intentional act of architects in the UK in forming the profession was saying, we need to distinguish ourselves from mere builders. Mm -hmm. And we are the gatekeepers into the profession and we are the ones who design. Mm. That's what distinguishes architecture from mere building, that there's a, you know, this very intentional design uh, aspiration that underpins it. And that we then as a profession determine what constitutes design, what the values are that you mentioned. And writer Amos Rappaport, a theorist, um, Amos Rappaport has written on this as have a number of others, but for me, Amos um, kind of is one of the first highlighting this. The values that the profession has had 
have really emphasized perceptual qualities mm-hmm. and conceptual meaning. So I can look at a piece of architecture and I can understand the intentions of what the architect was trying to do. And that is somehow embodied in the physical form. Mm-hmm. And there's value to that. I'm not denying that. But what Rappaport was also saying is the way that most people outside of architecture think of architecture is in terms of associational meaning or values. That is, I look at something and I think about what it's like to live there. Mm-hmm. And what does that place do in terms of enabling or contributing to my livelihoods? And an example I often use is was with a friend many, many years ago, driving through London, passed by this building. And I was just thinking, oh my Lord, that is an ugly, ugly building. And, and I, I said to my friend, look at that building. You know, what do you think of that? And she said, oh, I'd like to live there. And I was thinking, oh, you know, and she was not an architect. Oh, what's going on? And I, I know what was in her head. She was looking at the south facing balcony and was imagining herself with a gin and tonic sitting yeah. out on the balcony, looking at the setting sun. And, and for me, that reflects this idea of, you know, it's a way of life that she was thinking about. Whereas I confess, I was looking at it purely aesthetically. Yeah. Bricks were just thrown together, you know, these horrible patterns, I wouldn't even say patterns, uh, conflicting colors, and no thought about where joints were occurring, uh, you know, no setting out of the brickwork in a way where they're working with the dimensions there, you know, obviously just chop bricks here and there to make things fit. Mm-hmm. You know, it, aesthetically to me, it was atrocious, but to her, she thought about how she was inhabiting it. And I think that's part of where the line's drawn. Architects as a profession, collectively architectural media have kind of said, well, this is what we are including here and it has to fit this set of aesthetic values. Mm-hmm. And it's about a, a certain uh, in cultured set of values that the profession expects things that sit outside of it also have aesthetic value, but they're not ours. And I, I think that was reflected many years ago when I was teaching um, at another institution and was doing a, a class with second years. And I was getting them to examine the nature of the profession, the values that we had and ask them to identify a favorite place And they all started talking about, oh, the beach where I go with my family or my grandmother's house. And then their favorite place was defined by incredibly personal uh, sentiments. Hmm. When I asked them to identify a favorite building, oh, you know, the latest thing by Zaha Hadid or this well-known architect design building. And then I, and every student but one made that distinction. Mm. The one who didn't, um, I think it was actually a bit of a language problem because she was a non-native English speaker and I don't think she quite fully understood it or maybe not. Um, But anyway, all the others had made that distinction between a favorite place and a favorite building. Mm. And when I asked them why, they and this was second year students, they said, well, that's what we're supposed to think here. Mm. i.e. in a school of architecture we're supposed to think about architecture this way yeah even within a year they are abandoning the sort of values that they had come into the school with that identified a good place so i think Mm -hmm. there's something about the profession the nature of architectural education that quite actively whether it's uh, explicit or implicit acts to define that circle and, mm. and what we constitute is you know, included in the pantheon of architecture. Mm. And on the whole, vernacular architecture, despite its energy, despite its creativity, gets dismissed because it doesn't fit in easily to you know, what the, the profession has delineated as constituting mm. good architecture. Once in a while, architects do venture out, as it were, outside that circle, mm. and kind of borrow things. And then it becomes a kind of witty ploy. And look, I've borrowed from the vernacular. I'm using mm. this material, but I've reinvented it. Aren't I yeah. clever? You know, and, and it's that act of sophisticated manipulation that's that's honored. Whereas the, the original architecture, where they're doing it in arguably a more intuitive way, 
is somehow still dismissed. And, yeah. and again, I, I just want to kind of mess up that line between the two things and give value to uh, you know, what's happening in the vernacular without dismissing what architects have delineated as this kind of, you know, within that circle, because it has value as well. I'd like to come back to that later uh, in a bit, um, uh, this idea of how, how architects can engage in this, in this borderland between the two. But one of the things that strikes me about this discussion, and that's a really, really interesting point you make about the students and the way that students are in a way, it's a bit like acting school. Uh, one of my siblings went to the Royal Academy and, uh, of Dramatic Arts, and one of the things that the teachers of actors do is they take these native talents, you know, they're, they're young people who can, who can or desire to act, and they've seen some potential in them. They come from all over the UK, and they all come out of it speaking like me because they deconstruct they deconstruct the student's identity so that the student in a way can put on the the mantle of the actor um yeah. I, I i don't know if this uh, this uh, story about rada is 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 apocryphal or not but but it certainly I, you know it was many years ago and i things get misremembered but this idea that we kind of deconstruct students to to help them abandon their kind of, I suppose what you would call normative values, mm. in favor of the professional values, which, yes. which, must, which must maintain. And in my research and uh, thinking, this distinction, and there's a very good paper by uh, a man called Thomas Hubker, American scholar, um, called Just Folks Designing. It's a very good paper on the origins or the the, the development of vernacular architecture, very short paper, extremely beautifully written piece of work. Um, and he looks at the, the, the issue of professional knowledge versus um, community or grassroots knowledge or vernacular knowledge and how vernacular knowledge finds its validity in the discourse of the community over time. And the architect operates abstractly insofar as their validity is guaranteed by a body that sits beyond themselves. So our knowledge and our taste and our um, ideas are not our own, but the institution that is capital A architecture. And I think this is a really interesting distinction. And perhaps that's what we do in architecture school is that we, we train people to sub so, sort of, um, stand down their identity in favor of the institution that is the profession. Yeah, no, I, I fully agree. And again, I, I recognize that with this discussion, we're going into, I'll say contentious territory. There are a lot who would object to this, so be it. Um, there, there's been a lot of discourse on this, I think over the last 25, 30 years. A particular point of reference for me, since we're, we're swapping some names, is Thomas Dutton, uh, an architectural educator, wrote, uh, edited a, a fantastic book um, called Voices in Architectural Education. And in there, he discusses the idea of the hidden curriculum. Mm -hmm. There is a very explicit curriculum. You know, in this module, you learn about X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. The hidden curriculum is that which is not spoken about, it is implied, mm -hmm. and it fosters a sort of tacit approval, and students come to recognize, okay, this is what this tutor wants, so I will design mm -hmm. in that way, or this is what the tutor wants, I will write in that way, mm -hmm. and they adopt, as it were, another persona, mm -hmm. because they recognize it's what might earn the grades. Now, I can understand a lot of educators reacting to it, but there is a lot of research on it demonstrating this happens. I did some research years ago under the guise of pedagog pedagogic research, you know, and it, it did identify that students have this perception that there are some tutors that encourage students to kind of leave behind who they are and adopt, as you say, another persona, often, often the tutors. And I think what I'm reading from your comments is, is a shared sense of frustration or dismay 
at that happening. And, mm-hmm. and I think certainly in my own teaching, trying to foster in the students um, their own sense of self, trying to help them find out who they are. For me, it really draws on uh, South American uh, educator Paulo Freire, you know, and, and that, that notion of the freedom of the person who's learning and, and trying to support them to find their own way through things. And I, I think that's becoming far less radical these days in architecture. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was a student, you know, it, was, it would, would have been unheard of, you know, that, you know, talking about Freer, you know, and, and opening things up to the student. But I, I think things have improved, but there's still, I think, a bit of that legacy. Well, I, I, think, I think there must be. And I think in part this, this uh, recent, very recent. So, so if we, if what we say seems contentious and 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 would and would upset certain people, and I would hope it would, in uh, after a manner, um, w- when you get things like movements towards decolonizing curriculums or uh, an, a genuine sense of grievance that certain groups are not recognised uh, within um, professional. The, the, the discipline, then, then, then perhaps it's time to set aside um, people's feelings about whether we're saying contentious things. Because if you know, if it's not working, it's it, it's going to die, isn't it? It's you know, we're, and and so so this comes to I suppose to to bring it back to what we were talking about this idea of the the kind of issue about architecture and and the vernacular, or architecture and the everyday. Is how do we as uh, how do we, I suppose, more gently how how do we define the everyday in architecture, which is one of these words that gets knocked around. It relates to the vac- vernacular, and I think it also relates to this this broader socio political question of why architecture seems to impose a set of professional values, both on its students and on culture at large. Mm. Uh, pick up on that. Um... In a couple of ways. One, by just making a slight reference to what I was saying before, and people like Amos Rappaport or more uh, contemporary writer Kim Dovey, again, mm-hmm. talking about that emphasis on perceptual qualities that mm-hmm. Dovey refers to it as kind of geometric nature of architecture on, on the form. And in contrast to that, saying, you know, as Rappaport would say, you know, the, the big denominator for m- most people is just about the way of life that they're, they're trying mm. to lead. How does that relate mm. to the architecture? And so for me, then it becomes a question of if we give value to both those things, both the perceptual, but also the way of life that's mm. occurring within that spatial form, how do we gain a better understanding of that? Mm. And in my work uh, in the UK, you know, I'm immediately an outsider. Mm-hmm. I'm not from the UK. What do I know about people here? And what do I know about living in a, on a housing estate? Okay, within the context of doing some project work, I did spend some time living on a housing estate, which was different for me. You know, I, I didn't, don't come from a you know, kind of rich background in, in any sort of way, but I hadn't encountered that growing up in small town American Midwest. So that was a kind of big revelation for me. And going off to work in India, what do I know about India? I'm, mm. I'm an outsider. How do I engage with these people? And so I think throughout my professional life, whether as a practicing architect or as an educator, I've always felt like I'm the outsider. That Mm. is, I'm the other. It's not as if I'm the one that's on the inside and there's somebody on the outside. Mm. No, I'm the intruder here. And I think doing the the work at Elevate Bernstein, community engagement, there was a certain point where the penny dropped. It's like, you know, I'm intruding here. Mm. I've got to be very wary about what I do, what I say, I can't impose. I need to find a way of embracing them and, and, and trying to understand who they are. I never fully can. I still am who I am. I carry with me all the baggage of my learning past experiences. Mm-hmm. But what I can do is open up in my attitude towards the other. And 
I could delve into that a bit more, but maybe we'll, we'll leave that for the moment. But in, inherent in that then is, well, how do I gain an understanding? Yes, I can do it through dialogue, but you know, talking to people isn't always easy because we, you know, as architects, we have our own kind of subcultural language that makes it hard. We might refer to organic architecture and everybody in architecture would know what we mean, but for many people, organic refers to things that are non-genetically modified. You mm -hmm. know, it's like, what does that have to do with architecture? You know, so there's just words that we throw out all the time. Mm -hmm. Others may not necessarily recognize those. And for me, one of the key ways that I've gained understanding is through engagement with ritual, mm -hmm. whether as an observer or as a participant observer, and I'm engaging in that ritual mm -hmm. with them. And by ritual, I'm referring both to those things that we uh, are demarcated as a distinct act, like a religious ritual, a wedding, mm -hmm. but also ritualized behavior in terms of everyday behavior that people carry out, but through their actions, through the way that they consciously or unconsciously engage with it, they are distinguishing it as a something particular. Mm. And inherent in that ritual is a way that people think about and value the world or the way that they would like it to be. Mm. And by enacting this ritual, it helps them distinguish, you know, this is a particular thing and I'm setting up my way of acting and or thinking about things in a particular way. And an example I've written about um, tradition in Japan, people have of removing their shoes before they enter a house. Mm -hmm. And it's quite ritualistic in terms of a set of behaviors and even a language that goes with it. And as you remove your shoes, you are literally leaving the dirt from the outside world behind. Mm -hmm. But there's also a sense of I'm leaving everything that, that's out there, including bad experiences behind. Mm -hmm. And the language that greets somebody who's entering is, you know, welcome back glad you're safe, you know, and, and when one departs, be safe on your travels. So there's a mm. kind of demarcation of inside and outside, inside as being safe, outside being a place of potential threats, dirt as an example. And this ritual is a way of marking that, that I've left that behind and I'm now entering mm -hmm. this home. And if we look at some elements of traditional Japanese architecture, we can see a clear distinction in terms of the architecture and the, the layering of the house, step, sitting on this platform, taking your shoes up, um, mm. turning around, stepping up onto the kind of main platform of the house. So there's a, and I've simplified that, but there's a clear distinction made in the architecture. Well, what happens in a diaspora when you have Japanese people living overseas and the architecture isn't there? Mm. And interestingly, they still find ways of creating that demarcation whether through physical emplacement of something or mentally, no, I'm, I'm making a distinction between mm -hmm. inside and outside. And I, I think there's a number of things that are going on there. One, the capacity of people to generate architecture themselves, even in the absence of a distinct form, they still in place something onto a specific space to identify and, and frame how they see the world. Mm -hmm. Also, I think that the, the mobility of thinking, it's not tied to one place or time, but again, you know, that, that concept, the way of thinking about the world can move to another place and adapt to particular conditions mm -hmm. they find there. So for me, it, going back to notions of the vernacular and the, you know, the kind of architecture within the circle, there's this tendency to think of that architecture within the circle is somehow fixed. And mm. again, it's hermetically sealed. But when you look at everyday practice, you find people are quite adaptive and they find ways to make it work for them. So mm. my argument is, well, as architects, do we just leave it to people to do that? Or can we be more open to the possibility that they may act in that way and can we be open to an architecture that either allows itself to be manipulated or starts to anticipate mm. the move people might make? 
So I'm moving outside of that sanctified realm of you know, my own values of designing. Mm. Not that my, I think my own values are that sanctified, but you know, the architectural profession's sanctified values and say, okay, I'm gonna embrace the possibility that these people, some of whom I don't even know, are gonna bring something to the situation that is their own. And if, I'm, if I value the idea that part of architecture comes from how it supports people mm -hmm. in their lives, then I've gotta change how I think about it. Mm -hmm. and so it's, it's about embracing that every day sort of experience. And, and just one point I wanna add here, because I recognize I'm kind of talking on. Um, there was a famous Scottish botanist lived about 1750, not related to me, but same name, um, named Brown, who was trying to identify how things like dust particles or bubbles in beer move. Mm -hmm. They seem to be rather random, but he was trying to understand the nature of that movement. And it's something that's known as Brownian motion. And it is a way of identifying, trying to make sense of the nature of movement of these things. Mm -hmm. And I think the same thing happens when people go into a building. As architects, and I certainly have heard any number of architecture students talk about, well, people will approach my building in this way, and then they'll go up these steps, and then they'll go through this door, and then they come here, and they see the staircase, and they move up this, et cetera. It's this clearly mm -hmm. delineated route. You know, and the reality is somebody goes, and then they're standing outside the door on their mobile phone talking to somebody. And then they go inside and meet the person. Hey, let's go have a coffee. They forget about the stair. They go over here to the cafe on the side. Yeah, they, they're going all over the place. So that very clearly pres prescribed route isn't followed. Rather, the every day is just full of random acts, um, you know, last second decisions that pay, take people in different directions. And while those grand ceremonial roots, a la Le Corbusier's promenade, you know, can be special, not denying that, I, I think also think that those kind of random things can also be quite special in the role that they play in people's lives. So, so architecture can, good architecture, can f f sort of enable or facilitate that that everyday ritual because, as, as you say, you know, that behave. Behavior seems to be inherently ritualistic. Like we 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 construct rituals out of almost everything we do. Like people on their walk to work always stop and get a Starbucks because because they like Starbucks. But really, it becomes part of how they get to work. It's actually part of that process, and we do it in, in all in all things. And in fact, my wife and I consciously try and maintain certain rituals in our life because um, it's just when you've got children young children your life is chaos anyway so yeah. you need these kind of stable points and i think that's what one of the things that that, that they do but i i used to teach uh, up in glasgow at the school of art and research and teach up there and that building rennie mackintosh's <laughs> um uh, building of happy memory um i always thought was so clever in that it enabled very, very consciously, an architect enabled people to do what people do amidst the incredibly high-end design that he was also doing. And I thought mm. that, that it, 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 the, the outcome of that to me was that it totally dignified everyday behavior. It was mm. incredibly gracious in the way that it, it performed. So a student doing some kind of watercolor in the early 20th century and a student doing some kind of i don't know polystyrene based installation in the early 21st century were, were both dignified in 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 their humanity and i thought i thought that and i've seen other buildings that have managed to do it not quite so well that building was really quite extraordinary in, in its performance but um I, I do wonder whether that is what we should. So to come to this point about how architecture engages, you, you mentioned in one of your papers, you had this um, 
And I think you were talking more specifically about university education or higher education. You, you said the criticality of dialogic space in the context of civic engaged learning. And I wondered whether this idea of a dialogic space was perhaps at the heart of what vernacular architecture is insofar as it derives from an, an oral culture yeah. or it is, is a non um, written down in, in the sense of books and, and pro formas and kind of uh, building regulations and things like that. Whether vernacular architecture could be seen as dialogic and good architecture, good capital A architecture can also seen, be seen as enabling um, civic engaged learning through dialogue. Civic engaged learning being everything that makes us sociable beings. Yeah. Uh Ooh, there's a lot in that. Um, Sorry, I keep doing it, uh, no, but no, you, no, I've, no, I've read your stuff and then and it, and it kind of... No, it's, it's fantastic because it's making me think <clears> in a number of ways. Um, several things I'll try and respond to. One is about your comments on uh, Macintosh and School of Art building. Um, also, this idea of the, the dialogic um, and how that relates to the vernacular. Um, there was a third point in there, but it escapes me at the moment, but we'll get back to that. Going back to the Mac though, um, I think there are things that Macintosh did in his work, and I, I've never thought about it at this moment, and you know, maybe something to explore there uh, about Macintosh and you know, not just the art building, but also Hill House and, and other domestic architecture. I think there's something that he was doing intuitively I haven't read much on him. So maybe he did talk about it explicitly, but I think there are things that were doing, he was doing intuitively. And I remember going to Hill House and just sitting there and wanting to sit in that window seat, that nice long window seat that faces south and thinking, I would just love to be sitting there with a cup of tea and a book. Mm. And I think there's something he knew in the design of that and, and thinking about things in the, the art building, the way that one's drawn to the light, whether in the artist studios, the library, but also it's not just about being drawn to the light, also recognizing there are other points of it and uh, delving a, a bit into biophilia and, and notions of prospect and refuge, which just seem to be inherent in the human mm. species. The desire to have refuge, a sense of enclosure, a sense of mm. protectiveness, but at the same time, wanting a prospect, a view. And I think for me, his architecture intuitively captures that quality in the same way that I think Frank Lloyd Wright does. You get- I was just thinking as you were talking that this is Frank Lloyd Wright right here, isn't it? Yeah, you know, the, the idea that you're drawn to the fireplace, that central mm. thing, and then mm. the kind of the solidity of it offering a certain sense of protection, but yet simultaneously you get these amazing views and then the, the architecture, the extending canopy pulling you out into the landscape, whether the prairie or, looking over a waterfall and you know, whatever it may be that I think both of them just kind of understood that intuitively that this is how human beings operate. I don't want to try and encapsulate everything about architecture and prospect and refuge, but I think there are things that they were doing that appreciated the way that human beings react to the world and, and what makes them comfortable mm. and that in their work, they were, trying to give a space for that way of engaging things, that, that simultaneous act of wanting to be protected, but also wanting to see things. You know, but again, I think there's something rather interesting there to explore. Um, mm. Other side of it, you're talking about the idea of the dialogic and the vernacular. For me, I've got a particular reading of the dialogic or dialogism coming out of how I read Mikhail Bakhtin who wrote extensively on it, arguably formulated the concept or formulated it as well as anybody, certainly for me. And inherent in the dialogic is not just recognizing you know, the right of the other person and, and accommodating them, but literally embracing them. And what can I gain by embracing the other I'm not trying to turn into them. I'm not trying to turn myself into a hybrid, but rather, can I gain something? Can I be illuminated and, and have a better understanding, even of 
myself by that engagement with the other. And I think that is what the vernacular does intuitively, you know, whether it's the woman with the BMW sign or people being open to borrowing ideas, hey, you know, let, let's try that. They don't delineate a line, you know, this is my house and I can't borrow these ideas. No, I, I embrace them to see how it might become part of my life. Um, or at least it gives me insight in looking at something I'm doing and it may enhance it. It doesn't mean I abandon what I'm doing, but it makes me rethink it mm. and improve it. And I think the vernacular just does that intuitively. I think architecture needs to, you know, I would suggest take itself a little less seriously yeah. and, and be open to the possibility that, hey, there's another way of doing it. An example of that, at the risk of speaking too long, um, years ago, my wife and I owned a smallish flat. Um, we decided you know, it didn't meet our needs. We just stripped it out in, in a way and started over and you know, reconfigured some stuff. But in coming up with the design, we were struggling. Whatever we did didn't work. And the reason it didn't work is we just had too much stuff. I have far too many books you know, beyond what you can see behind me. I'm sure you're the same. My wife, uh, fellow architect, educator, just has too much stuff. She, she likes materials. And we just have this massive collection of things, yeah. Not to mention too many clothes, et cetera. We just had too much stuff. Whatever we did didn't work because it was just, it felt like it was cluttered. And at a certain point, it just dawned on me, um, quit trying to fight it, embrace the problem. And the problem is the solution. Yeah. And when we suddenly changed the design of the flat to being about showcasing what we had, it all fell into place. Yeah. So instead of a living room, we had a library where there happened to be a TV and a sofa, but it was really a library. And each room was treated in that way. And then maybe the most fun bit was the entry um, where we, we played with things and we took what, have, what would have been a boring cupboard as you came right into the flat and we put some Ikea sliding bedroom polycarbonate see-through doors on that. And then we took the light out of the ceiling and we put these lights inside the cupboard. So when somebody like we came in the house and you flipped on the light switch, what lit up was not some boring old light on the ceiling. The whole cupboard lit up. And then yeah. you could see all our stuff inside. And everybody always really liked it. We liked it. Um, and it was just kind of saying, you know, let's flip this around. Yeah. Now, am I a, an IKEA fan? Well, some of their stuff's okay. But we just, hey, let's take this thing. It will work. And it was just trying to find different ways of thinking about things. Mm. And, and for us, it was a fun solution. And again, yeah, yeah. others liked it. Um, you might call it, it you might call it a values-based solution. Yeah, and Looking so part at what of the you value on, uh, sorry. Yeah, I was just gonna say, it's, I'll, I'll finish off by saying, it's about that embracing of the other. We, mm. we took something that could be seen as kind of kitsch, the mm. Ikea sliding bedroom door, and it kind of became something a bit more Mm. And, and we treated it with a certain amount of respect. It became part of the showcase. The light came from behind it, which in a way not just lit up things within the cupboard, but also the cupboard doors themselves. Mm. And, and I, that's, I guess, part of what I'm trying to get at that, you know, let's embrace things and see what opportunities might be revealed through that. Yeah. Sorry for the long-winded answer. No, no, not at all. I mean, again, that, that idea though, that you've illustrated with that example is of an incredibly um, detailed and intimate, as you, you mentioned action research earlier, it's an incredibly engaged, intimate um, study of what you as human beings with values and, and um, desires want. And, and that, with so going back to this idea of say for example modernism in architecture which has this tendency towards well literally reducing people to avatars like Le Corbusier's Le Modular is is like a six foot man isn't he he's uh, he's based on James Bond um apparently um where it's a it's an incredibly um unintimate engagement with people that leads to a kind of universalizing principle 
So to go all the way back to Levitt Bernstein and that corn exchange that I used to go and watch punk bands in, uh, which wasn't a very good environment for punk because it was full of seats and, you know, there, there, there was very little throwing around, uh, throwing yourself around space. But um, it was it was very much based around actually a close study of how people would behave in that space or needed to behave or would like to behave. So it was, again, um, as, as you've described in your flat or your old flat, um, it's how architecture does that and how we could even educate people. So onto this kind of final point, and I, I guess we shouldn't spend too long on it, but this idea of, and, and you've, you've talked about it and touched on it a kind of a number of times, how do we actually go to the edges and operate in a way that isn't pastiche, which is I think what you were talking about when you're talking about how we borrow bits of the vernacular and then build, we, we you know, you, you see it a lot in Kent, um, people, adopting the Oast House model or the kind of neo-vernacular, but they're building houses for multi-millionaires. And it's like you're taking an industrial environment for industrial peasants and then turning it into millionaires' houses. I mean, that surely there's some kind of mental conflict going on here. So how do we do it in a way that isn't pastiche, isn't uh, to do with cultural appropriation, isn't to do with the imposition of our authority, and is it, does it just come down to this kind of actually looking people in the eye, talking to them, understanding them, engagement with them? I, I think you're absolutely right. It, it does. And it's trying to gain that deeper appreciation. Um, what's her name? Maria, Mariam Havatum, H-V-A-T-T-U-M. So I apologize to her because I'm probably mispronouncing her name. Um, wrote a rather interesting text in a collection of essays that was part of the Primitive Conference. And, and she made uh, reference to the idea that acts follow urges. You know, there's these things that appear, physical mm. artifacts, but actually it's about understanding the urges underneath them. Mm. And if you really want to get to the heart of the matter, you've got to move beyond the act, merely mm. looking at, say, the Oast House and understanding what was behind it. Why did that arise in the first place? Mm. Example of that, I remember years ago, took students to work in the Bosque region and fiercely proud people of who they are and, and a sense of independence that they aspire to and see themselves as having a, a very distinct culture apart from Spanish culture. Mm. And so with the students, we're trying to delve into that, you know, what defines the Bosque? And it's very easy to look at some of the examples of the architecture and say, okay, that, that's the Bosque. You know, and then obviously ignore the Guggenheim by Gary, which the people in the Bosque region say has nothing to do with them in terms of who they are culturally. And so we're trying to find ways of gaining a better understanding of their cultural sensibilities. Mm. And I would argue this about a lot of places, if not everywhere. One way to gain an understanding of who people are is look at what they eat. You could also look at music. You know, you mentioned punk before. You know, and I think it, it goes back to that old Italian saying, um, mangiare, cantare, amore, food, song, and love. Mm. Well, for me, you know, I think that the food's an easy one to tap into as much as mm. I like music. And the sensibilities about people have about food says a lot about how they see the world and what they value. Mm. So when we're in the Basque region, you know, poor us, we started going on pinchos or tapas tours. You know, we go along and have the small tapos or pinchos as they call it, a small glass of wine or beer, you know, it was quite fun. But it, it's such a part of their cultural life. Every evening people go out and do that on their way home from work or on their way out to dinner, way out to theater. And they go out maybe to meet friends or just to meet new people. And it's just part of this cultural celebration in the Bosque region that you see this kind of promenading in the evenings. And in many ways, the, you know, it's a question of, well, does the, the food and the, the drink inform the kind of act or does the, you know, the, the socializing or does the socializing inform the food? And, and I think it's, it's a much more circular relationship, but we, we're examining the food and, and recognizing there is something inherent 
in their sensibilities about simplicity of things, mm. not overlaying the food with sauces, but you know, very uh, simple ingredients, but well-prepared and, and high quality ingredients mm. um, that were well-presented. And then when we started looking at some of the vernacular architecture, we started making a connection to, okay, this is what we can see that same sensibility at play in the architecture. And then we look, started looking at particular Bosque architects and seeing those same sensibilities. Mm. So that started to inform the student's work, not mimicking some image, but rather how do I work with something that has um, some very good quality materials, well-crafted, but in a, a relatively simple way that has a robustness to mm. it. And I think that led to us feeling like we'd done well. And then we went back and exhibit our work in the Bosque region. It was well received. People said, yeah, you know, this feels like it's part of the place. Mm. So in a way, you know, it, it was kind of a dialogue in that instance with mm. food as yeah, a way yeah. of giving us insight to people's sensibilities there. It can come through a, a direct dialogue um, but for us, this was an engagement with that ritual of pinchos when people go out on their pinchos mm. tours. So poor us, we had to do our participant observ observation and engage in the same thing. But it, it was hugely informative and it yeah. really helped us understand, I, I felt, the people in that region. And mm. I think the way that our work was received by people suggests that you know, we were tapping into something mm. that... Uh, was sensitive to their sensibilities. Well, I think that's a lovely point to stop on. Um, uh, really, really nice um, conversation. Thank you ever so much, uh, Bob. I Thank really you. enjoyed it. I think that's a um, huge amount of food for thought. I've got another uh, 25 things I want to talk about, but I think we uh, we'll owe it to our employers to get back to uh, get back to the, 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 the mill. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Uh, I hope this is uh, useful for your students to listen to. Um, very much open to questions if people want to send something via you. You know, I'm very pleased um, to be able to continue the dialogue in some way. So thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that was huge fun. Thanks again to Bob Brown. Have a look at his biography in the links in the description. And as the good professor suggested, Drop him a line if you want to continue the conversation. Please, of course, like, subscribe, follow, share AS for Architecture on your socials, and see you next time. Cheers.